Eric Roberts is a fucking man He's the greatest fucking actor since acting began We should give him every medal, every trophy and award He's the greatest fucking actor that you've ever seen or ever heard Let's get bout it, bout it, and rowdy, rowdy. It's episode number 50 of Eric Roberts is the fucking man, the world's most celebratory Eric Roberts-related podcast. I'm Doug Tilly, and joining me in his birthday suit is my co-host, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? You know, I'm a little lonely, Doug. I'm a little lonely. Why? Why? What's happening? What's what's going on with the wife and child? Oh, she's visiting fam back in the Midwest, Illinois. Oh. They're in oh. Illinois. So you're by yourself. So So she is... In the midst of Sufjan Stevens territory, as I like yeah, to call it. Right, exactly. <laughs> in the amber waves of grain or corn or whatever the fuck is out there. But that's interesting. How come you did not uh, join your lovely wife on this excursion? Uh, well, it was kind of a last-minute decision, and she was like, hey, uh, I realized I can do this trip. Can you do it? And when I looked at my schedule, I just couldn't – I couldn't make it work without – uh, having trouble both at work and with uh, Cinepunk stuff, so she decided to go. I mean, it was just really important for a bunch of our her family has not met sure. her dark yet, so oh, of course it's important for her to do the trip. I think she we both would have preferred if I could go, but I mean, there's pluses to being home alone. Like I can sleep through the night and I can eat food. I shouldn't, but mm-hmm. it's more just lonely. I mean, just like you know, I dropped her off at the airport yesterday at noon. Today, I woke up like two hours late. Like, I woke up for work at the time right. I'm supposed to be at work, and oh. I didn't eat any breakfast. So it's like just their lack of presence in my life, and I'm already living in chaos. You know, Liam, I, uh, I, in, in my work, in my real life, I sometimes attend psychology lectures in sure. university. And I was in one recently where they said that when you become a couple for a long time, that you actually start to share your mind with, with the person you're with, meaning that... Uh, that one person starts to develop uh, expertise in certain areas of the relationship and, and the other person uh, develops expertise in the other areas, which means that when you have a partner who passes away or that you break up with them, people feel very, very lost because they've lost literally a chunk of their own mind. They've lost a piece of themselves. Do you feel like you're missing a piece of yourself right now? Oh, yeah, definitely. And not even just because of the lost skills. So, like, if anything having to do with, like, our insurance were to come up right sure. now, I'd be lost. But also, like, Suze, as I'm sure you know, is the compassionate, uh, mm-hmm. empathetic human mm-hmm. one of our couple. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you're a so, robot of some sort built in a, uh, a Pennsylvania factory. Yeah, basically. Sure. Yeah. Liam? Yes. This is the 50th episode of Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man. I'm starting to think I should have led with that as opposed to that nonsense we just talked about. <laughs> hey, happy 50th. 50 episodes. I mean, how exciting is that, Liam? I mean, I'm pretty erect right now. Okay. I mean, I, there's no need to, to be coarse <laughs> like that. But, but honestly, I mean, when you think about it, it, is it an accomplishment? Do you think when you tell people, Liam... Yeah. That you are the co-host of an of the world's most popular Eric Roberts related podcast. Yeah. Do you have a sense of pride now that you know that there are fifty episodes of it? Well, I spend more time apologizing because they don't know who Eric Roberts is, and then I mm-hmm. feel embarrassed mm-hmm. that I do this right. thing with my time. But once we get past all that stuff, yeah, there's a sense of pride there. Liam, when someone says, and I think this is very important for us to discuss before we get into our guest who's waiting very patiently, um, when people say, Who is Eric Roberts? What what's the way that you get them to know who he is? 
Oh, um, I usually uh, go straight to uh, the Dark Knight. Right. That tends to be pretty effective. If that doesn't work, I just go to uh, Julia Roberts' brother. Julia Roberts' brother. Yeah. And, and the star of the Dark Knight, Eric Roberts. Yeah. I mean, depending on who I'm talking to, a couple times I've gone straight to best of the best. And that's actually right. been pretty effective with certain people. Yeah. You got a lot of bros in your circle. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Liam. You can shut up. Our guest today is the director of the acclaimed documentary Rewind This and enjoys both low-budget cinema and pizza. It's Mr. Josh Johnson. How you doing, Josh? I am doing great, Doug. Nice to be on uh, the anniversary 50th episode of the show. It's the big 50. That's what I like to call it. And I knew that when we had the 50th episode upcoming, we needed a Cracker Jack guest. And when I think Cracker Jack, the first name that comes to mind is Josh Johnson. Now, is that because I mostly eat pizza and Cracker Jacks? Pizza and Cracker Jacks are, it's honestly, when I think of you, Josh, I think of your really unique recipe for uh, Cracker Jack flavored pizza. And when I think about you, Doug, I mostly think about uh, Science Crazed. Science Crazed, the film. Now, people listening right now probably don't know what Science Crazed is. Why don't you tell them what it is, Josh? Science Crazed is uh, a quote unquote movie. That uh-huh. uh, was made in 1989 and released in 1991 in your native land of Canada. Mm-hmm. Video uh, directed by a man named Ron Switzer, and it's not a movie in the way that you usually expect to see a movie. It's more like two thirds of a movie that was kind of manhandled and forced to become a full length movie by yes. re-editing and kind of putting the same moments you've seen before into a new context through. I think you could say creative editing. And it's it's I mean let's let's be cuz this is a different audience than I would have on No Budget Nightmares. It's a poor it's a poor film in a lot of ways. It's not a great film, but it is a highly unique film. So depending yes. on, you know, what mood you're in, uh, sometimes you want to have a new experience and you know this could be like trying a a type of cuisine that you've never sampled before. And Josh and I have bonded over our shared love and and respect for Science Craze, which, by the way, is available on DVD at Videonomicon.com. Why don't you go over and pick yourself up a copy of it right now? And if you do, you will find a commentary from Josh on that movie. That is true, uh, along with Mr. Paul Korup, the uh, founder of Canucksploitation.com. And I was able to join the both, both Josh and Paul, for a screening of Science Craze just last year in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Which I think uh, went over less well than I was hoping, if I'm honest. <laughs> People who were – anyway, we should not go into to extensive detail in regards to the poor taste of people in Toronto, Ontario. I think it's well documented. Uh, but I should ask you, Josh, since you've gone out of your way to attend the 50th anniversary of the Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man podcast, um, what is your Eric Roberts history? Where's the first time that you remember – uh, knowing about Eric Roberts as an actor? You know, I've been trying to figure that out, and I'm really mm-hmm. not sure I know the answer. I feel like I had a general awareness of him and his existence before I ever saw him in a film, and that might have been through, you know, programs like Entertainment Tonight. Maybe I was sure. just, uh, you know, seeing him on a magazine, or somehow he was tied into his obviously very famous sister, Julia. So I don't think I actually had seen him in a movie before I was well aware of who Eric Roberts was. And then when I finally did see him in something, I think it would have been first The Specialist, followed right. by The Cable Guy. Oh, interesting. 
And I quite the combo there. Yeah. Well, I think they kind of represent the spectrum that he's capable of. So in a way, I feel like that was a good way to break in. Now, now, with that in mind, it's certainly been a number of years since you first became aware of him. What now would you consider your favorite Eric Roberts movie? You know, I feel like it's kind of an uninspired choice, but I mean, it really is runaway train. I think the sort of dynamic between him and John Voight is uh, really incredible. And I mean, I think it's an undeniably great performance. I think it shows that he's a really talented actor and with the right material that he can really excel. And 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 it, it's one of those um, kind of prototypical '80s Eric Roberts performances that has a lot of kind of that manic energy. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because the two features that we're going to be discussing today really feature a very different kind of Eric Roberts. That's true. It, it, they feel uh, a little bit like uh, we're looking at the mature Roberts. The mature. That's one way to put it. Certainly, very laconic, very kind of of laid back, almost paternal. I would say. But we'll get into that. In just a minute. Liam, what are your thoughts on Runaway Train? You know, you weren't with the show when we first discussed that on it. Yeah, um, I, it, it's actually been a while since I watched it, so I don't know that I have much uh, cutting insight other than when I saw it, I really liked it. And it was one of the films when we first talked about me being on the show that I hoped you had not covered, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you had. Yeah, in fact, I get that quite a bit when I reach out for guests and they're like, have you talked about Runaway Train yet? And I'm like, yes, in like the first five episodes of the podcast, <laughs> we blew through that probably absurdly quickly. You blew through most of the good stuff prettier. No, hey, Liam, that is incredibly unfair, as, by the way, will prove on this very episode, number 50 of Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man. I didn't say you blew through all of it. I said most. Did you say most? I sure as shit did. Well, let's rewind and see what you said. <laughs> <laughs> if only if only we had the technology to allow for something like that. We certainly do not. All right. Well, let's enough of the jibber jabber. It's the episode number 50, which means we need to jump into the most important part of the show, which is the Roberts Report. It's the Roberts Report for episode number 50 of Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man. And as per usual, we're going to start with a deep dive on the Eric Roberts Twitter feed. Eric has been very, very active on Twitter over the last few days. And unfortunately, uh, part of the reason for that is uh, is something that's actually rather sad. Maybe we should talk about it right off the top. Uh, In between the recording of our last episode and this one, we unfortunately lost the lead singer of Soundgarden, Chris Cornell, uh, it was actually a very tragic uh, end to his life, uh, very sad, and uh, longtime listeners of the show might remember that Eric Roberts was actually in a music video with Chris Cornell, uh, a nearly forgot My Broken Heart, very confusing video for those who remember that episode, uh, but uh, but Eric, has, uh, uh, because he did work with them and had uh, at least some sort of relationship with them, he's been quoted in a number of articles about that, uh, that artist uh, since his death. Gonna go over to you for a second, Josh. Big Chris Cornell fan. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, if I would say that. I mean, I, I listened to Soundgarden a lot when I was a teenager and was really into that. But I didn't like the sort of where their discography ended up. And then, you know, when he was in Audio Slave and other things, I really didn't follow along. So at this point, right. I, I mean, I recognize that it's a loss, but I really hadn't actively listened to anything he was doing in quite a long time. But I mean, I certainly have fond memories of his early Soundgarden records. Now, Josh, what is your favorite 
James Bond theme song. Hmm. I know. If, if Unexpected. I, if I'm going to be totally honest, it's Duran Duran. It's a view to a kill. Yeah. And in fact, that kind of uh, bridges into another recent loss. The great Sir Roger Moore has unfortunately passed away. Uh, the little James Bond connection there, Josh. Yeah. And uh, you say Roger Moore of James Bond fame. I say Roger Moore of the Wild Geese fame. Oh, I see. Well, we'll battle about that on 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 the Roger Moore is the fucking man podcast. Liam, over to you. Uh, Chris Cornell, a fan or no? Uh, I mean, I, I please don't speak ill of the dead, Liam. Well, that's what I was about to say is that I'm not really interested in bad mouthing a man, especially uh, not only just one who passed away, but under such tragic circumstances. Yes, uh, I wouldn't say I'm a fan. I will say that. Uh, like many people my age, I, I couldn't escape that Temple of the Dog song, so that will be in my brain for all time. Um, now, now the song that you're referring to, Liam. Yes. Uh, could you sing us just a small? <laughs> I'm going hungry. <laughs> I don't <laughs> mind stealing, stealing bread. bread. That's you know, this is really the second. Uh, right before we started recording, I actually mentioned Eddie Vedder uh, uh, offhandedly, uh, and now we're we're speaking about him again. Doesn't that seem a little strange to you? Lee? I'm going hungry. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Please, please, no uh, more of that. But like, I, I think the first Soundgarden release is pretty okay. But I was right? never, I was never a big fan. All right. Well, very disrespectful. But recently on the no, Eric Roberts. No. Okay, recently on the Eric Roberts Twitter feed, at Eric Roberts on Twitter, he tweeted, this is a very nice tweet, actually. He tweeted, I love the love so often shown on Twitter for beings two-legged, four-legged, and any-legged. Keep up the love. Hate can wait. Over to you, Josh. Can hate wait. Uh, It always can wait. I think this is a lovely sentiment from Mr. Roberts. My personal favorite thing about this is that with this statement... He felt it was necessary to tag the official account of the uh-huh. Twitter application itself. Well, what you'll find on the Eric Roberts Twitter feed, very recommended, for, especially for fans of this show. In fact, it's sort of a prerequisite, uh, is that he's, he's very good at tagging people when he's referring to them. Specifically airlines. He's a big fan of making sure that airlines know that he's had a very good experience on their uh, on their, their, their flights. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's kind of his trademark, if you ask me, Josh. Okay, good to know. I mean, it's it's a good way to to touch base, I think. Uh, uh, Liam, back over to you. Recently on Eric Roberts' Twitter feed on May 23rd, he tweeted, Please support the British Bulldog for the WWE Hall of Fame. Sign the petition at TeamDavyBoySmith.com. Now, do you have, Liam, uh, some sort of emotional connection to the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith? No, none. Now, do you know who he is? Um, I remember the name from when I briefly watched wrestling, uh, uh-huh. but I, I couldn't pick him out of a lineup at this point. It did seem a little odd to see this uh, this suggestion on Eric Roberts' Twitter feed that the British Bulldog should be in the WWE Hall of Fame. It seemed to be somewhat random, don't you think? Does he's, Is he a wrestling guy? Is he, is he a wrestling mark, as they say? A mark? He does not seem to be... A mark. He's also not a smart mark, which is another thing that people sometimes say, yeah. uh, Liam. Yeah. My understanding, and this is from me doing a little a research, a little, mm. uh, little PI action, which is one of the themes of this show, mm. um, is that there is a gentleman <laughs> re- representing this website, TeamDavyBoySmith.com, and he is getting uh, testimonials from famous people 
to include on this website, and one of the people that he has contacted is Eric Roberts. But why, like, do they have a, does Eric Roberts and the British Bulldog have a relationship? I'm no, try, I don't I'm believe so. I'm trying to understand the angle, is what I'm saying. Like, what, it, what, uh, what is the gimmick they're working right now? Let me explain it to you, Liam. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, and this is something we see on a lot of the lower budget uh, films that we cover on Eric Roberts is the fucking man. It's that uh, Eric Roberts, the actor, brings a, a sense of name recognition to the projects that he is he is in. Uh, he is someone whose name that they can then connect with that project as a way of marketing it in some way. And I think in this case, there might not actually be any sort of emotional connection. It's really sort of a business transaction. Hmm. All right. Josh Johnson, British Bulldog for the WWE Hall of Fame. I do not know who that is and mm-hmm. have no uh, thoughts about this one way or another. Do you know who Vince McMahon is, Josh? I do. Now, they're doing a Vince McMahon biopic, a film about the life of Vince McMahon. And one of the things we brought up on a recent episode was that we think, and when I say we, I mean uh, Liam went along with what I said, is that Vince McMahon should be played by Eric Roberts. What do you think? I actually think that's an inspired choice. I think he would have to uh, do some weightlifting, but I think... Yes, no kidding. Their uh, facial features are not dissimilar, and uh, I think we've seen Roberts do some performances that are actually not dissimilar to the uh, McMahon persona. I think it's actually not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. You heard it first from Josh Johnson, the director of Rewind This. On the 22nd of May, 2017, Eric Roberts, at Eric Roberts on Twitter, he wrote, Stop not knowing what you know. Liam, stop it. I will try, but I can't promise. Now, what do you think he was referring to here, Liam? If I'm being completely honest, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I know. I mean, I guess uh, if I'm if if I'm gonna guess, uh, maybe this idea that there's certain things when you think of something that you might know but you don't actively know it, uh-huh. it, maybe these are like emotional realities you know what i mean like things that you should know about yourself or about the world okay i'm just gonna stop you there for a second liam okay. josh over to you should we stop not knowing what we know yeah i think it's good advice i think a lot of us have certain uh, instincts that we question or second guess out of insecurity or a fear of what mm. might happen but deep down we know the truth of them and we should listen to ourselves Yeah, and stand by your convictions. In 2017, that's what Eric Roberts is saying, stand by your convictions. A listener of the show recently pointed out to me, uh, she asked me a very, very good question, Liam, and this will be of interest to you. It's whether we will cover audiobooks on Eric Roberts is the fucking man. And my immediate response was, what? More content we have to cover on this show? And the reason she asked this, Liam, is that Eric Roberts has narrated an audiobook. Liam. <laughs> yes. Eric Roberts has narrated an audiobook. Oh wow. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to I've actually can I be honest, I've never in my life even once uh finished an audiobook. Well it's interesting you say that because our new sponsor is Audible.com. <laughs> mm. Audible. I hear they have original comedy content now, so that might be good. Yeah, there's stuff to listen to on there. Yeah. But uh, but on Audible, you might be able to find, I'm not sure if this is true or not, Quitters Incorporated, which is a uh, uh, some sort of, I think it's a short story. Uh, it's only 45 minutes in length, uh, the audio recording, uh, of a Stephen King story. And, and read, in this case, by uh, Eric Roberts. Josh, do you listen to audiobooks? 
Not generally. I've listened to, I think, maybe two in total at this point, but I'm open to the idea of listening to more of them. I especially like the idea, you know, I, I lived in Brooklyn for a while, and now I live in upstate New York, and right. one of the big differences is that I drive more. I have a car and I drive, and I mm. like the idea of on uh, road trips maybe listening to more audiobooks. Now, you did say, Josh, that you've listened to two yes. previously. Now, what were they? I mean, maybe the one is not technically considered an audio book, but it was uh, uh, the, uh, I believe it was called Diane Ellipses, the audio tapes of Special Agent Dale Cooper. It was <laughs> an East tie-in thing that I, I bought when I was a teenager and listened to. And then uh, recently I also listened to uh, uh, an audio book by Rita Mae Brown because of a project that I was working on and I was researching Rita Mae Brown and I almost was about to order the book on Amazon and Dora and I, my wife, were about to do a long road trip and instead of ordering the book, we just got the uh, audiobook on Audible and listened to it as we drove. And how was that? Was that do you feel like you really kind of, of took in the material? Were you able to focus on it? No. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> but that said, uh, I was driving and I feel like as a passenger, I might have uh, felt very differently about it. Now, Liam, have you ever actually listened to an audiobook? I've tried to do two. Um, it's sort of like a podcast, except someone has written out every word that you're going to say. Yeah, I, for whatever reason, <laughs> I find it harder to pay attention to an audiobook than to a podcast. And I don't know if that's because um, the sorts of, I mean, if I'm listening to an audiobook, it's probably a novel. And right. maybe I just need to focus more to like get into that world that I can't. Whereas like with a podcast, and maybe this is disrespectful, but I don't feel like I need to be as engaged to understand what's going on. It's really rather disrespectful. Um, yeah. Especially if you're it, talking, it, then I could just tune out. Well, fair enough, Liam. I do find it – it's interesting, and this is something I've noticed particularly on this episode of Eric Roberts is the fucking man, uh, which is that when it comes to a project that either I'm reading a book or I'm watching a film and it has a lot of characters, that I, I'm very bad at kind of maintaining in my memory – who these characters are and what their motivations are, unless I pay very, very close attention. And I, it, it, one of the great things about a book is that you can keep flipping back, and it's like, oh, right, that's right, that's who that character is. Uh, and films have that kind of visual element that allows you to connect it. But I feel like if I'm listening to an audiobook, that's very difficult to maintain. Yeah, I actually found that to be my experience of, um, oh, what's that called? S-Town. Um, uh, because not all the people he was talking about in his story was their audio of. So the right. people he described that there was an audio of, if they came up a few different times, sometimes I would have trouble remembering who they were. So if I could hear their voice, I'd be like, oh, I know who that is because whatever. But if it was just their name, I'd be like, oh, who are they again? And I, something about the having to listen to it, especially because I tend to listen to those sorts of things when I'm doing other things, I would get lost a little bit. Whereas two people having a conversation, I can follow what they're talking about uh, more than I can a narrative. Liam, the band Live, do you know the band Live? Yeah, unfortunately. Remember, they had a, a big hit called uh, Lightning Crashes. That sounds right. And it was off an album called Throwing Copper. Do you remember this album, Liam? I mean, I know that it exists. Right. Now, there was a song on this album, I believe, and it was called Shit Town. Really? Yeah. You think they were talking about where they're from? Probably. Yeah, they're from York, PA. If I remember – oh, little local connection there. Uh, if I remember correctly, the, uh, the, the chorus uh, of the song went, uh, gotta live, gotta live, gotta live in shit town. Well, that's uh... – 
I feel a little less cool for knowing that now, but I know it. Josh Johnson, are you a fan of live? Well, again, I don't want to speak ill of anybody. Um, I haven't listened to them in a long time. I will say that at the time that Throwing Copper was burning up the charts, I was certainly mm-hmm. one of the individuals who bought it, and I did listen to it quite a lot at the time, but I feel a great distance now between myself and uh, that version of Josh. Do you remember that song, by the way, Josh, Shit Town? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I wasn't making it up. And they also, of course, uh, after the the tragedy uh, at 9-11, they had a song that went, I am overcome. Remember that song, Liam? No. All right. We want to send out our big congrats to uh, former guest of the show, Ethan Martin, uh, on the acceptance of Eyes of the Roshi. Uh, It's going to be featured in the Soho International Film Festival running from June 15th to the 22nd. Big shout out to Ethan uh, and a big accomplishment for that very entertaining film. Uh, You might want to check out our episode on that, uh, which was, uh, I believe, at the beginning of this year. I think the first episode of 2017 featuring Ethan Martin uh, doing a little interview about that film. There's also a recent article over at uh, People.com uh, about Star 80, or uh, more accurately, about the real-life murder that inspired the film Star 80. Uh, Josh, now, you said that that uh, Runaway Train is your favorite Eric Roberts movie. Have you seen Star 80? Yeah, and I mean, that whole period is really a, a great period for him, with Runaway, Tr- Runaway Train, Star 80, The Coca-Cola Kid, and then a mm-hmm. uh, Oh, there's another big one right in that early, like... Oh, yeah, I know what you're thinking of. It's probably the Pope of Greenwich Village. Yes, of course, of course, yeah. I mean, that, that's a great period uh, for him. And so Eddie might be my number two Eric Roberts performance, actually. I mean, he, it's so uh, unpleasant that it's hard to find a lot of joy in watching it, but uh, it's undeniably uh, a powerfully executed performance. Uh, in this article, they actually talked to Eric Roberts, uh, and they quote him as, as referring to the Dorothy Stratton story and saying that Dorothy Stratton was one of the most beautiful women to ever breathe. She was a box of candy, and if he can't have the whole box, nobody else could either. That's basically the foundation of his coming unglued with that kind of psyche, and it's just awful, but it's what happened. Liam, what did you think? I know that you weren't here for the Star 80 episode. You've seen Star 80, Liam? I have not. See, that is shocking to me because you might not be aware of this, Liam, but you are the co-host of an Eric Roberts podcast. It's true, but in order to keep up with the podcast, I have to keep watching all these movies that aren't as good as Star 80. Fair enough. Josh, what do you think about Eric Roberts' sex chair that he uh, he, he uh, builds in Star 80? I think that it's not really for me in terms mm-hmm. of uh, what he's attempting to accomplish. But that said, you know, there's a part of me that feels a little excited. Look, let's just put it this way, Doug. I appreciate when anybody puts effort into anything for uh-huh. benefit. And I, I can understand why that would be a meaningful thing to, for him to have done. I think, look, obviously the character that Eric Roberts plays in Star 80 is a reprehensible gentleman. We are not trying to defend him in any way. However, it does show... A, uh, a surprising amount of uh, uh, of intelligence and skill and ambition to build a chair using your own two hands for the purposes of having strange sex with uh, a semi-willing partner. Yeah, I mean, I think the the deal with his character is that uh, he overcommits to a lot of questionable things, but you, on some level, can at least admire that. Uh, He's got a real stick to Stick to 
is perfect, Josh. That's absolutely right. Liam, us having that conversation, does it make you want to check out Star 80? Oh, Star 80 was definitely, and it continues to be, on my list of films I need to see, you know, sooner rather than later. Makes sense. Recently added, Liam, to the ever-expanding Eric Roberts IMDb page is 2017's Executor from director Mozico Wind, featuring the great Paul Sorvino and Misha Barton. The film is about a ruthless assassin trained to kill in the name of God by a corrupt priest. He reevaluates his life purpose after saving a little boy from one of his own assassination attempts. Uh, I watched the trailer for this. Uh, and Eric Roberts is featured in that trailer. He gets garroted and killed, so I think that's probably a bit of a spoiler. Sorry, everybody. Um, but he plays a character named Richard in Executor, coming June 6th to Amazon and, I imagine, um, on DVD as well. Liam, are you going to check out Executor? I mean, we took a blood oath, so I'm going to check out whatever he puts out. A blood oath, so you should get on Star 80. Does that description interest you at all, Josh? Executor. It does. Uh, I'm a little bit disappointed uh, that the fate of Roberts has been spoiled, but sorry, everybody. Sorry about that. But I do love Garotta. So I have a question for you, Josh Johnson. Mm-hmm. What do you think about faith based cinema? I wouldn't say that I appreciate it in the way that it's intended to be appreciated, but mm-hmm. I would nonetheless say that I do appreciate it. Well, that then is going to lead into my next question, Josh. Now, you've picked two feature films for us to discuss on this episode of Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man, our number 50 big celebratory anniversary episode. Uh, And what have you chosen for us to watch? Well, the first film is Deadly Sanctuary. And uh, the second film is, of course, Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. Now, what made you choose? We'll get into Inherent Vice uh, in a little bit. What made you choose Deadly Sanctuary for us to watch? Well, it was a few things. I was going through, I mean, as you well know, Roberts has become astonishingly prolific in recent years. Oh, yeah? So there's just so many films to choose from. And uh, of the things that you hadn't covered yet, I wanted to find something that I thought had some kind of interesting angle or something that was unique to it. And this had a couple things going for it. Uh, One, I liked that uh, his character's name was Tug. Uh, that was appealing to me. And I also thought it was interesting that it was kind of a thriller that was uh, based on a novel written by a woman that, uh, you know, she was able to adapt the screenplay herself with somebody else. Right. And the director was a woman. And everything about the premise seemed like the kind of thing that you ordinarily don't get to see from the perspective of female creators. And so I thought that could be an interesting avenue into this otherwise unknown to me movie. Uh, I mean, very good uh, 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 reasoning behind uh, choosing this. And we'll see if it paid off in just a little bit. It did uh, occur to me uh, while watching these two films that they actually have uh, some elements in common. I mean, they're both, there's both a mystery at their center. Uh, certainly the one in Inherent Vice is a little more noirish and certainly a lot more, I'll say, well-written. Uh, but uh, but there, there is kind of this core uh, investigative person that we're following and kind of revealing facts as they go along and being introduced to new characters. Uh, so it'll be fun, I think. It'll be fun to compare the two at the end of this show. Uh, but before we do that, we have to take our first break. When we return, Deadly Sanctuary, either from the year 2015 or 2017. And we'll talk about that right after this.
feisty, flame-haired reporter Kendall O'Dell is drawn into an evil web of conspiracy beyond anything she could ever have imagined when she accepts a position at a small newspaper in isolated Castle Valley, Arizona. In the mix is a vanished reporter, two dead teenage girls, and an attractive cowboy. Kendall's life hangs in the balance as she strives to uncover the horrifying secret of the Deadly Sanctuary. Yes, Deadly Sanctuary. Uh, as you mentioned before the break, Josh, Deadly Sanctuary is based on the novel the young adult novel, I believe, by Sylvia Nobel. I'll go, I'll go Nobel as the pr- pronunciation of that last name. Uh, and is directed by Nancy Chris, who has a very prolific director. Uh, and as you, as you also mentioned, Josh, a female director. So one of those rarities uh, in filmmaking, we have a female writer, female director. And what did we come up with? I'm going to start with you, Josh, since you are the guest. What did you think of Deadly Sanctuary? Well, I liked the opening scene. I thought it sort of... Uh set itself up to be uh, kind of like a, what I think of as like a early to mid nineties kind of straight to video thriller. Um, Sure. It seemed to kind of fit all of the mold of that. And then it very, very quickly shifts gears once we get into the principal character and it kind of turned out to be something very different from what I was expecting. And I was certainly curious about it, but as it wore on, I found myself less and less interested in the mystery. And I think a big part of that for me, or a big part of the problem for me, I'll be interested to hear what you guys think, is that it did seem pretty clear to me very early on who uh, the, uh, let's say, bad guy was. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's because I've seen a lot of these movies or if it was you know, something about the way in which they handled it. But I felt like the key turning point was uh, pretty clear almost from the get-go. Yeah, I, 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 honestly, I, I'm right there with you. I wonder if on the printed page uh, it's a little bit less uh, transparent in regards to – I mean it's, it's interesting because in this movie as soon as they introduce this particular character – and we'll actually spoil it in just a little bit so just hold on. Um, it, it, it was immediately I was like, well, you can't trust this person. Uh, and, and I was right. You couldn't. And uh, especially as they elaborate on the person and there's all this mystery in their background. Anyway, let's not belabor that point. Liam, what did you think of Deadly Sanctuary? I also found it – rather predictable who the villain was and even the circumstances <laughs> of their villainy and yet i was also confused is that possible like it's like i i felt like they were projecting how things were going to turn out but as we went through the twists and turns i had to keep being like wait why does this matter again like i i don't know if it's the pacing of the film or the fact that uh i found the main actress to be um not enjoyable, I guess is how okay. I want to put that. I don't know what it was, but for whatever reason, I, I had a lot of trouble really keeping with this movie and really like understanding things, even though I kept thinking, oh, it's it's that dude, you know, or oh, it's the they're at the thing or oh, that lady's clearly, you know what I mean? Like I could right. I, I, in that way, I kind of thought like it played out the way I thought like I, I figured it would. But a lot of things that were happening, I didn't quite always understand why they were significant or I had to remind myself why they were significant. (laughs) I was just having trouble not necessarily just paying attention, but like caring. I will say that one of the things I like about this movie, and it's something I've liked in, in a number of different movies is the kind of small town atmosphere around it. Meaning that, you know, and it brings me back, look, it's hard to compare a movie with this kind of scope and budget to something like Jaws or John Carpenter's The Fog or The Goonies or something like that. But what I mean 
in terms of that comparison is just this idea that you're introduced to characters in a small uh, Arizona town, and they're all supposed to know each other, and there's all these old relationships that exist, and there's this mystery at the center, and it kind of ties everyone together. It's that spider web that kind of goes throughout the entire cast, and I tend to like that, and I tend to like that in my mystery-type stories. Mm. Uh, it's a genre that I really enjoy. So as kind of the layers were revealed, I was feeling like I was getting into it more and more, and then at some point, it just got tiresome because I felt like for one thing that the the eventual conclusion was very obvious um, and really at that point I was just kind of waiting to see if my prediction was correct which it was um, and the other thing is I didn't feel like the central mystery um, was I, it, it felt like it was stretching things from from the the kind of sense of reality that came before it because it does kind of rely on a, uh, a conspiracy that involves a lot of different people in a lot of different kind of power levels that 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 uh, seem to be putting themselves at risk in a really kind of ridiculous way. Uh, in fact, let's let's just let's just cut to the uh, chase a little bit here. What's going on in this town, this mysterious town, uh, is that there's sort of like a human. It's not really human trafficking. Basically, they're taking runaways, getting them pregnant, and then selling the babies. Is that correct, Liam? Yes, that is what I uh, uh, seem to be true. And it involved both the uh, shelter and the um, the mental health facility. Yes, a mental health facility. And also Daniel Baldwin in a very interesting role. <laughs> what happened to Daniel Baldwin's character in this movie, Liam? <laughs> I'm gonna go over to Josh for a second. Josh, what happened to Daniel Baldwin's character? You know, I just watched this movie and I don't remember. <laughs> he just goes away, right? He just kind of goes away. He doesn't get shot. He just vanishes entirely. I'm sure it didn't matter. I'm sure it wasn't important. Well, obviously, both of you did not think of it up to this point, so I guess it really wasn't that important. Now, this is a star-studded affair. Obviously, this is uh, done on a on a low budget, but it does have some recognizable names in the cast. I just mentioned uh, the great Daniel Baldwin. Uh, and this also features Dean Cain as Roy Hollingsworth, the sheriff of this small town, uh, who may or may, wink, uh, be a bad guy the whole time. Boy, big surprise there. Uh, Josh, what did you think of Dean Cain in this? And what do you think of Dean Cain as an actor? I actually thought he was quite good in this, and yeah. I generally feel that way about everything that he does. Um, and in fact, one of my favorite Dean Cain performances is a very recent one. He was on uh, Maria Bamford's Netflix series, Lady Dynamite, playing oh, yes. himself in a really delightfully self-aware way. I think he's somebody uh, who really understands his place in film history in the sense that like he was on a very popular TV show. He's somebody that people are vaguely aware of, but he's not a big star, but he sort of gets that and has fun with the level of celebrity that he has. And then, you know, he does these little character roles and I think he takes them seriously uh, and does a good job with them. I actually was quite impressed with him in this movie. It's interesting to see an actor that again, the, the TV series, I think that we're most familiar with Dean Cain from is uh, Lois and Clark, The Adventures of Superman. So this is Superman, but here he's playing a sleazy sheriff or a sheriff that uh, at least kind of reveals himself to be sleazy. And you're right. I think he does a pretty good job. Uh, what did you think, Liam? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think that this is the second thing. I don't remember what the first one was, but I feel like this is the second thing I've seen him in where he plays a bad guy. Right. And, and when Dean Cain plays sleazy, it always comes off a little... Uh, 
less intimidating than I think th- that he could be if it wasn't sure. if it wasn't Dean Kane. But I still like his performance. There's just something it, it always comes across a little whiny. He plays a very whiny bad guy, but I think it worked for this film. The other movie I remember him do he was in, I really didn't enjoy. It was very similar to this performance, but I didn't enjoy it in that film. In this film, I think it kind of works, and it, it, and he uh, it, it, he he really came across as like this was the this was a role he cared about, and he was in it. You know, like it worked for this character. There's a part Liam where Dean Cain, uh, our lead character, uh, uh, Kendall O'Dell, she's taking photos at a crime scene. Mm-hmm. And he gets very upset at her, and he takes her camera, and he first he takes out the uh, the flashcard, and then he throws her camera to the ground and 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 steps on it, and then she just sort of walks away. Don't you think that she should have like at least grabbed the camera in case it could be fixed? Yeah, I don't that 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 was one of a few places where it, it felt like they didn't think through the scene all the way. There's just a couple of moments in the film that just sort of end. And I'm just kind of like, is that really how we want to end that scene? But it is what it is. Now, Nancy Chris, the director of Deadly Sanctuary, she works very, very frequently. In fact, I believe that she is uh, a producer and has her own production company, which focuses a lot on faith-based cinema, uh, films that like uh, with, t- with titles like Take Two for Faith and Awakening Soul, coming in 2018. Um, and uh, as you mentioned before, Josh, one of the interesting things about this movie is this is an adaptation of a young adult novel which has a lead female character. The adaptation was done by a woman. It's directed by a woman who's used to doing faith-based movies. It's it's a very it's a very light in terms of 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 um, extreme content. Let's say it's it's very much like a PG rated uh, type production. Um, but with that in mind, what did you think the fact that this was a female led uh, film? What did that bring to the whole process? Well, interestingly enough, it didn't seem to bring any of the things that I thought it would. Mm -hmm. When you look at the movie, it actually feels very much uh, as though it were either made by men or made in a way that's trying to cater to the male audience, specifically the male gaze. The way in which the camera leers at our central character is sometimes kind of uh, surprising and off-putting. There's a very gratuitous uh, underwear scene where she flees the bathroom uh, where there are spiders and is you know out of her house in her underwear. And then there, there's these other kind of weird bits of what I would describe as mansplaining where right. – the male characters, not only do they like come to the rescue, but they also have to kind of explain to her how things work in sort of a way. And I was genuinely shocked by that. You know, the main thing that was drawing me to this film is I I thought that it was going to be the reverse. I thought it was going to have this really compelling female character written and directed by a woman. And we were going to get a perspective on this genre that we don't usually get. And it actually felt in most ways like it had the same deficiencies that all of the male directed versions of this have. And I found that to be very unexpected and kind of puzzling. If things go according to plan, usually these type of plots where you have a big city person coming to a smaller area uh, and at first they think they know it all or maybe they're intimidated and the people in the town are like, well, you don't know how things work there. At the end, both groups seem to learn something about each other and there becomes this kind of uh, uh, common respect for their own experiences. But here that doesn't really come out like that. She's sort of over her head right from the beginning and... Uh, even the kind of thorough line of her being afraid of spiders, I thought at the end she was going to be like, uh, she was going to have to encounter a spider and be like, ah, fuck it, I'm I'm too tough for this. But she never really gets that moment. She just comes off as sort of second banana to a lot of the male characters, even at the end where she has to be kind of, of rescued by a man. Mm-hmm. 
And she has this sort of weird naivete that is kind of hard to believe where even though she's an adult aged woman from the city, <laughs> she, A, has experienced horseback riding, which we don't know why. <laughs> Despite being the kind of person who has had that experience, she has never before had Mexican food or tried a margarita. That's a very strange combination of characteristics for this character to possess. It, yeah. it, it particularly rubbed me the wrong way that they kept they wanted you to know at the beginning of the movie that she's from Philadelphia. Like they kept saying it, you know, blah blah, Philly. And I was like, who in Philadelphia has never had Mexican food? And <laughs> uh I the part where she's like, Oh, whatever you have, it's better than my apartment in Philly. And I was like, No, it's not. It's not better. That's <laughs> shut up, lady. Like I, I just felt like the 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 because she was made out to be so um She's just kind of like riding events, and it's not clear where what she kind of brings to the story in a lot of ways. That at the end, when she's kind of explained, like there's she gets the she gets the girl detective moment where she gets to explain how smart she is and how she figured it all out. And it it, it felt that part felt very tacked on since a lot of oh, the yes. movie doesn't treat her character with very much respect. So it's like now all of a sudden I'm supposed to be at the end, be like, you're right, she did figure it out. She's so great. I'm like. Why she's been the butt? It, it feels like a lot of the movies she's the butt of the joke, and there's not not enough moments where it's like she stands out or she's her own person. It's also the wrap up at the end that you were just referring to, Liam. It really is quite bizarre because it, it really resembles like a TV show yeah. ending, right? I mean they they uh, they rely very heavily on the fact that Dean Cain's sheriff is crooked, and then at the end. We are we kind of it's made very clear that he's crooked, but there's no fallout to that, right? It's just like at the end she escapes with her cowboy pal, and then everything gets cleaned up. I mean, shouldn't that be like the kind of scandal that would rock that entire place? Don't you have to let uh, all the people that that guy arrested out of jail? And like, isn't that like a huge fucking deal to find out that the sheriff is this is this crook? You would think there there would be some next thing, but instead they're just like, well, we had the horse chase and the lasso. So I guess oh, the man. movie's over. <laughs> Do you think, um, Josh, that that part of the central uh, appeal of this movie for the the either the readers of the book it was based on or or the viewers of this is this sort of romantic um, element at its core, where this uh, this main character she has this uh, cowboy who is very interested in her. And she also has this rich businessman, and she has to choose between two of them until she discovers that the rich businessman is actually impregnating runaways for a secret underground baby selling ring. Absolutely. I think uh, more than it feels like an adaptation of a young adult novel to me, it feels more like a sort of uh, romance novel geared towards uh, people who have been married for maybe a few decades and are looking to... uh, safely explore uh, the exciting company of another gentleman uh, kind of a thing. So I definitely think that's part of the appeal, but it's hard for me to imagine that this was uh, ever a book that was geared towards uh, young adults. There, there's something very almost old-fashioned and kind yeah. of uh, mature, and not mature in terms of like sophistication, but just like appealing to an older audience about Absolutely. The- yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is the kind of thing that like honestly – my mother or not my grandmother, uh, but to certainly my mother would enjoy because of, again, I don't want to be disparaging towards my mother, but it's just because of the kind of archetypes that it's playing with here. It's so funny to think, I mean, just think about this, this lead cowboy character who is a, apparently a rich cowboy 
who also works at the newspaper <laughs> as a reporter and does them both simultaneously and also is pursuing our lead, uh, a bumbling character. There is sort of a kind of odd, I guess it shouldn't be that odd, wish fulfillment going on here that, that kind of seems at odd at what is very a very serious mystery at its core. Almost It almost gets a little too heavy once it gets near the end and you can see all these pregnant teenagers all sitting on a couch. I, uh, I As I said before, I have complex feelings in regards to Deadly Sanctuary, but one of the things I don't have complex feelings about is Eric Roberts, the actor. Uh, Josh mentioned before that he plays a character named Tug in this film, and I, I love that because it r- rhymes with Doug. But Liam, who is Tug? He is the guy who runs the newspaper and a friend of our main character's father, who basically right. hires her just out of respect for her dad. Right, right. And and and, and uh, there's a suggestion that there's a long history there. There's a bit of a mystery around Tug as well. There's uh, some inference throughout the plot that he might be wrapped up in something, uh, sort of a red herring thing going on. Uh, did, did you get sucked in by that, Liam? No, I mean, it didn't work for me as a red herring because it was... It didn't feel very fleshed out to me, so I assume I was hoping it was a red herring because I felt like if that's where the movie's going, they need to spend a little more time <laughs> talking about that because I don't really get why it, it just didn't have as much attention as the rest of the plot. There is a uh, scene where uh, Eric Roberts' character Tug he gets very upset at our lead character Kendall because she's been kind of poking her nose where uh, it doesn't belong, right? She's, she's a loose cannon. Um, and, and he mentions that, is it, is it Eric Heisler, the rich gentleman who's, who has helped prop up the, the, the newspaper? Is he the one who has given them money? I, yeah. There's some suggestion there yeah. that, that he's bailed them out because, you know, print is a dead medium. Um, and uh, so does that mean after that person ends up going to jail or the morgue <laughs> that, uh, that their newspaper is now going to go out of business? I don't Josh, do you think they went out of business? Uh, I think they're on their way towards heading out of business, yeah. To seem like it has kind of a, a small appeal, investigative journalism in a very small town from someone who's never even been to a Mexican restaurant before. Indeed. And, you know, I imagine that that was always the case. But in uh, the modern era of uh, online content consumption, it seems pretty unlikely that that paper is going to last much longer. It's kind of funny when you think about it. Dean Cain, of course, played Superman, who in his daily life, he was a reporter as well. What do you think? I mean, I think he's a Superman. Superman, indeed. Liam, what did you think of Eric Roberts in the movie Deadly Sanctuary? Um, You know, this sort of, uh, this kind of like lighter, goofy Eric Roberts is not necessarily my favorite, but, you know, it, it, it's not a bad role for him, and... Uh, he has a kind of charm as this, like, um, I don't know if he's supposed to be, like, eccentric. He's kind of like an eccentric guy. He's got his own stuff going on. But he never really gets to do anything that, like, brings – that he gets to, like, sort of show off or be very Eric Robertsy. you know what I mean? So sure. I, I – uh, I don't know. It was it was a good performance. It's not like he was bad, but I didn't get a lot from it. It didn't give me a lot of what I like from him. I uh, 
on the contrary to what your own feelings, Liam, I actually like this sort of. I mentioned the word paternal earlier, and that's that's the kind. That's how I usually describe these type of Eric Roberts performances, where he's he's got kind of like an ah shucks, you know, I'm going to take care of you in some way attitude, but he's also a little hard nosed. Um, and I was surprised at the amount of Eric Roberts in this movie, uh, even compared to Dean Kane, who's only has maybe two scenes in the whole thing. You know, they pepper in the Eric Roberts performance, uh, and you even get him in the Mexican restaurant. Quite a surprise there as well. Uh, so I was pleased with the amount of him we got, but I want to go to our guest, Josh. What did you think of Eric Roberts in Deadly Sanctuary? I really enjoyed him. You know, I feel like the performance that he gives here is a great example of the kind of character actor performances that make a lot of these low-budget movies so enjoyable, where you have somebody who has something of a reputation and is probably a little bit overqualified for the role that they're doing, but... For whatever reason, whether it's, you know, they need money or whatever, they take the job and they're committed to have fun with it. You know, they've committed to doing it, so they're going to do it. They have the experience and the chops to pull it off and they want to kind of see how they can push it. And you can tell that they're having a good time and their good time becomes your good time. It's kind of an infectious thing. And every time Eric Roberts is on screen in this movie, I thought the same thing, which was, oh, he seems to be having a lot of fun doing this. And I really enjoyed that. I think it's very endearing. Well, I mean, I, I actually am a fan of this performance. It's, it's a very comfortable, very lived in, which in, in a situation like this, where you're supposed to believe that all these people have known each other for a long time, it actually does work for me. But that then does prompt the question at the core of this podcast. Starting with you, Liam, is Eric Roberts the fucking man in Deadly Sanctuary? Yeah, I mean, it's not Ooh, my favorite. Hesitant. It's not my favorite kind of performance from him, but he's good. It's not there's it's not like some of the films we've seen where he doesn't seem to be there. He's not having fun. Like, I think he's owning the role. It works for the film. It's not my favorite sort of version of what he brings, but I think it's really good. Josh, do you think that this was at least there was a a hope that this could be a series of films? Uh Yes, I, I think there was certainly a hope there. I mean, I, given that the writer had uh, already written, you know, a series of books and was used right. to how to build these things into a franchise, I would imagine that this pivot from writing books into writing this film was probably uh, that she was optimistic about that happening. I mean, I don't know if the other participants in this film would have had uh, those same aspirations for it, but I think the key creative team probably saw that there was an opportunity for that. And in fact, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't talk about it as if it's not possible. I mean, this is still a very recent film. We might see a sequel to Deadly Sanctuary at some point. But I should ask you, Josh, is Eric Roberts the fucking man in this movie? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think he he literally is the man. You know, he's kind of uh, the guy who runs the show. He's something of an authority figure. He's the guy that sort of takes our principal lead character under his wing and shows her the ropes so like he's kind of presented as the man in the context of the story itself and then just because of his sort of uh, irreverent fun performance that he gives i think absolutely eric roberts is the fucking man eric roberts is the fucking man in 2017's deadly sanctuary a problematic movie in a few ways it's still i think it held my interest until the end even if it was very very predictable but it does have a uh, pretty enjoyable eric roberts performance at its core and of course the daniel baldwin performance which i just can't rave about enough um we're gonna take a break and when we return uh, a slightly different kind of film and a different a slightly different kind of filmmaker behind it we're going to be talking about 2013's Inherent Vice, right after this. (laughs) 
During the psychedelic 60s and 70s, Larry Doc Sportello is surprised by his former girlfriend and her plot for her billionaire boyfriend, his wife, and her boyfriend. Wow, this is off. This is terribly written. I <laughs> can't fucking believe how uh, incomprehensible that is. It's the plot of Inherent Vice, the Thomas uh, Pynchon uh, novel that has been turned into a movie by the great Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, really one of the most notable roles for Eric Roberts in recent years. He even got a poster for Inherent Vice. Uh, but I can tell you that, and, and anyone who has watched the movie would probably agree with this, you cannot really summarize this plot in a small paragraph. There's a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of connections between characters that are slowly revealed. And there are some plot points which really kind of just don't necessarily go anywhere, or at least anywhere substantial, and that's kind of half the fun of it. Um, both Liam and Josh have seen this movie previously, and uh, I, have, I have to admit right up front, this was actually my first time watching it. I was a little embarrassed about it. The problem was that I, I was going to watch it, certainly in the past, but I have an Eric Roberts podcast, and I knew eventually we were going to watch it for this, so I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. So this was my first time watching it for the show, and uh, and it was certainly it's something I'm still processing. It's the kind of movie that you really do do that. But I want to start with you, Josh. What are your thoughts on Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice? I think it's a great film. Uh, when I first saw it, I really thought to myself, like as I was watching it, oh, this is really going to be uh, a big. And I don't know if I thought it was going to be a big hit, but I thought it was going to be very well received. And I thought that Paul Thomas Anderson had delivered yet again. And uh, I was really, really satisfied with it. And I was very surprised after that that it got mostly good reviews, but it was somewhat divisive. I mean, uh, sure. after you know, a string of you know through the roof acclaimed movies, it, this one was a little bit more of a mixed bag. And I was really surprised by that because to me it was. <laughs> Uh, even more satisfying than I thought it was going to be because it, for me, is one of the best examples I can think of of uh, that sort of unreliable narrator storytelling where right. you're, you're always forced to a little bit question the veracity of what you're seeing. And as a result, it just makes every scene so much more engaging than it might be if you were just being given the information in a more kind of traditional way. It, uh, like yourself, Josh, I was surprised at the critical response to it. I actually feel like it's already starting to get sort of a, uh, a, resurgence, a resurgence since its release. It seems like people uh, tend to love it more or are very vocal about loving it uh, now compared to when it first came out. I had some friends who actually had a very similar response to The Master when it came out. And then, you know, a year later, they were like, this movie is amazing. And, and maybe because it's a movie that is so dense, that has so many characters, that in some ways feels a little indulgent, if only because Paul Thomas Anderson is obviously such a huge fan of the source material, uh, and there's a reverence to that in some ways, that it, it, it's more difficult. It's, it's a more complex experience to watch this than it would be your traditional Hollywood movie. And, uh, and people who went into it expecting something as uh, kind of straightforward as even There Will Be Blood or Boogie Nights were probably a little surprised at the twists and turns at its center. Liam, what did you think, or what do you think, of Inherent Vice? Oh, I loved it when I first saw it when it came out. And when I um, looked to, as I unfortunately am off to do, look at the internet to see what other people think after. I, I tend to prefer to find out after I've seen a movie, like, okay, I, you know, here's my thoughts. Let's see what other people thought. And at least when it first came out, there was such a backlash. I was very surprised at first 
The more I've thought about it since, though, I don't think um, I don't think other than maybe Magnolia, right? Uh, I don't know that his other films have involved so much um, the sort of dialogue you have to pay close attention to to really pick up what exactly is going on. Um, especially the last couple films are movies that you know there will be blood. There's not as much. Uh, dialogue. The master has some moments, but a lot of times that there's, it's not as much the transfer or the um, giving you like key information. And there's a lot more sort of visual things going on with this film uh, on second watch. I really noticed how much there's two people having a very tight, very right. quick conversation in which you need to be tuned in to pick up some of the nuances of what they're saying. And I'm wondering if that was part of what didn't click for people. They were coming in expecting another movie that relied more on visual, like sort of stunning visual, you know, things. But if you go back to like, you know, um, some of his older films, there's more of that there. So I, I don't know. I, I, I shouldn't probably work so hard to explain why people didn't, <laughs> didn't agree with me, but I, it was just an interesting that they, they didn't for me. I don't see this as that different from his other movies in that I like all of his films, like everything he does. I like, and this is just another thing where we've got great performances. We've got really interesting visuals and characters, and we've got a narrative that is entirely entertaining. I don't know that I always, uh, like in this case, he's, he's dealing with the source material and, and I don't know that I, know exactly sort of like the angle of the source material in the sense of like um you know like people to some extent want to talk about the master or there will be blood or magnolia or whatever they want to talk about what they're about in right in like a meta sense and i never think i know like i just with him as a director i'm always kind of like uh what do you mean about you know like like, what are we discussing here because i don't know that i have a a handle on what some of the films like sort of larger things are yeah and in this case of course those larger themes are are then mixed in with thomas pynchon's larger themes of his novel and obviously there's it's interesting what you were mentioning about the the kind of uh focus on dialogue here you know i really love boogie nights it's it's not just one of my favorite paul thomas anderson movies it's one of my favorite movies and one of the things i really love about it it's how loose a lot of the dialogue is. Yes. Uh, yeah. And and uh, for those who have like the special edition uh, DVDs and, and Blu-rays of that movie, there are some behind-the-scenes uh, segments where they show them recording, uh, in particular the Mark Wahlberg, um, uh, John C. Riley uh, scenes, where there's so much improv, and there's there you know they do that in so many different kind of ways, and um, and here of course you kind of gotta be a little more careful to to recite the dialogue as written, even though my understanding is that those Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Josh Brolin scenes were done in a lot of different ways and that maybe kind of uh, uh, had some of that that improvisational energy that Boogie Nights did. And you can kind of feel that in those scenes as well. But this is a movie that's very dialogue-focused. And as you said, Liam, you really got to pay attention to it. You need to care about what's going on and you need to listen. And there's a lot of movies that either use visual shorthands to always tell you where you are and what the relationships between characters are here. But here, you know, this is a movie that treats the audience with enough respect that they're they're supposed to be paying attention to it. And I worry a little bit, and I don't want to be disparaging between uh, towards audiences, that that might be what kind of turned some people off of it. I, um, I will say there are moments, it, some of the way that dialogue functions, there are moments like that in Punch Drunk Love. 
Right. Um, but I but Punisher Glove overall is a little bit more of a visual story. It's just that some of the energy of those scenes in this movie reminded me a little bit of a couple scenes from Punisher Glove that have a certain mania to them. Josh, what is your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie? It's really difficult to say. At this point, I think I would probably say There Will Be Blood. But uh, for many years, uh, like you, Boogie Nights was really one of my very favorite films. And to this day, Paul Thomas Anderson is one of my very favorite filmmakers. So, I mean, they're all very cherished by me. And as far as I'm concerned, he's never really misstepped thus far in his career. But uh, There Will Be Blood, I think, a friend of mine put it best that when they saw it for the first time in 2007, it was one of the rare moments where as they were watching a movie, it felt as though it had entered the canon. Right. Right, that you could see it as being something else, like something higher, even as you're watching it for the first time. And I actually had that experience with it as well. You really did feel like that this was someone working at the height of their powers. What is it about Paul Thomas Anderson as a filmmaker that appeals to you? Well, initially, when I first you know, became aware of him through Heart Eight and Boogie Nights, I, I really admired a lot of things, particularly the audacity of how much he was really going for broke and trying lots of different stylistic things. Right. I mean, you can see that he's a little bit riffing on certain Scorsese techniques and sure. things like that, but there's a, a huge amount of energy uh, combined with uh, a tremendous empathy that there's a sense that he loves and cares about these people and wants to present them as honestly as possible while also managing this uh, wild sort of cinematic vision. And, and that combination of things sort of touches upon uh, you know what I think movies can do when they're at their best, which is act as kind of empathy machines to generate a connection to other human experiences and also to kind of dazzle us with the technical feats of what the medium can do. And across, you know, all of his movies, like that's, those are two things that he always puts forth, I think, uh, in a big way. And recently, and you know, his films have become in some ways a little bit almost more restrained, but, Absolutely. uh, they haven't lost either of those things. I mean, they, they still really get to the heart of the humanity of the people that he's capturing and they present the scenes and the information in a way that shows somebody fully in control of what the medium can do, perhaps just exploiting it in a more subtle way. But uh, I, I think he's one of the very best filmmakers we have. I, I think that in some ways Inherent Vice is sort of a return to a more empathetic and more almost romantic view uh, of something like Boogie Nights, of of the kind of familial aspects of that. And even though that kind of continues through, with it, especially that idea of, of what makes a family unit in some of his later films, There Will Be Blood focuses on such a reprehensible character in some ways. The master has a lot of the complexity of those characters is that it is, is as such that it's hard to get a read on how much of a, an emotional um, uh, connection that you can have with them as an audience member, but here we're supposed to like some of these characters. We're really supposed to like them, and he even um, and this is a spoiler for those who haven't seen Inherent Vice, he even changes the ending to make it a little bit more uh, satisfying for that main character. You can tell that he loves that character enough that he wants to give him some sort of satisfaction, even if there's a bit of a question mark whether it's going to be a, a long-lasting satisfaction. Do you think um, that in 2017, Josh, that audiences have trouble with a director who has sort of like a more romantic vision towards humanity? That's a, a difficult question to answer. Um, I feel as though there is certainly, I, I guess, a more sort of heightened cynicism in the general populace at this point in time, and that things that are sentimental or romantic are probably easier to dismiss. But 
I don't know. With a film as complex as this, I feel like anybody who's gone on that ride is probably the type of audience member that is not as likely to uh, reject that. But in, in a general sense, I do think uh, romanticization or uh, sentimentality in movies is much harder to convey now than it would have been mm. even you know six years ago. Yeah, and sincerity. That's another thing that, that you really – you see people kind of – really reject sometimes when they see that in a movie it's it's something that a lot of people can't seem to necessarily handle liam do you have uh do you have a difficulty with the with sort of the romanticism at the center of this movie no not at all in, in fact um i would say that there's so many other aspects to this movie that have a certain edge to them whether that is uh the hulking untrustworthy uh, basic like evil entity that is the uh, LAPD, which I, right. which I know that Thomas Pinchon is sort of known for um, kind of conspiracy theory, yeah, almost like ridiculous portrayals of things. But I don't know, LAPD felt pretty re- realistic in this movie. Um, <laughs> like just sort of like a hard nose. That's what they are actually like. Um, so I, I, yeah, it, there's enough things to sort of balance out those. That that idea that there's a, a sympathetic, heartfelt whatever to this film, um, and there's also so much like going on. There's so much complexity to the story that I like the idea that there's also kind of a heart to it, or uh, I don't know how you want to think about it, but that that sympathetic aspect. I don't know. I I guess I don't also. For me, I can engage what a film is doing if it's honest so like certain films that like are really cynical and dark and perhaps uh in some sense nihilistic if they're true to what the story is that they're telling i'm like so into it and then other films that are like pure sugar fucking like the world is going to be okay we're all going to make it if it works in that film i'm like the biggest mark like crying like it's so true we're gonna be okay and so i i I don't think i have uh i'm more concerned with the way a film is made and some of the other uh more often like political implications than i am about like oh well this one's just too sappy or oh there's no hope in this movie it's like well this movie didn't need hope. Fuck you. You know, like I don't, I don't care as much. You know, <laughs> it, it's interesting that that filmmakers that I really love, like Frank Capra or or Stanley Kramer in particular, it's someone who critics have sort of turned on in in say over the last decade or so. And whether it be because the they are so obviously putting a message in their movie, or maybe because of the optimism that they have towards humanity, is if if we could all just like take a moment to try to relate each other, relate to each other on a deeper level. Not that necessarily it's as heavy handed here; it really isn't an inherent vice. But you know, I, I do think that there's an optimism at the core of this movie, which makes me enjoy it all the more. And it also felt a little rare when I was watching it. I mean, I do want to talk. Be, you can be optimistic without lying. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like you can be optimistic without just not telling the truth. And I think you got to know the difference. Now, this cast of Inherent Vices is, is really amazing. And in fact, that's one consistent thing across every Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Yeah, he has uh, usually an ensemble cast of a lot of familiar faces. But here, it seems like everyone has been chosen very specifically for the character. Again, it, it has something to do with that source material uh, and the visualization of the source material by Paul Thomas, Thomas Anderson. Uh, what are some of the performances, starting with you, Josh, that really stood out to you? 
Well, one of the real standouts for me is uh, Hong Chow as Jade. She's somebody that I'm yeah. not familiar with at all before seeing this film, and I, I was just blown away by her. She immediately has uh, such charm and such a way with uh, the dialogue. You know, the, the, a lot of the characters and the way that they speak do not strike me as uh, inherently easy to deliver as an actor. And her character in particular has a, a very particular uh, way of delivering dialogue. And, and I was very impressed with that. Um, Joanna Newsom, I think is really interesting as well. You know, I, I guess the people that impressed me the most were the people that I wasn't as familiar with. I mean, I certainly expect Michael Kenneth Williams or Joaquin Phoenix or Josh Brolin to deliver sure. a great performance. But, you know, with Hong Chow and Joanna Newsom and maybe to uh, something of a lesser degree, Catherine Waterston, because I, I know she had done some theater and some stuff like that that people would know sure. from. Uh, but I was very impressed with how they were able to enter into uh, a somewhat intimidating ensemble like this and really hold their own and uh, really deliver performances that were absolutely on the level with all of these kind of Oscar nominees and uh, beloved character actors. And then, of course, Martin Short is pretty remarkable as uh, Latinoid in his sequence. It, it, I will say about Martin Short's uh, performance in this is that it's so good, and I really do think it's really terrific. I wanted more of that character, and that's something I can say for a number of different characters in this movie. And one of the things that makes it so remarkable, which is that th there's a hint of so much going on, that there's so much backstory, and there's such a three-dimensional aspect to a lot of these characters, and they all have such great fucking names, that, uh, that you almost could tell a, a short story about every single one of them that, that could have like, kind of that satisfying beginning, middle, and end to it. And, uh, and that, even at two and a half hours, I felt like I wanted to spend more time with a lot of these characters. Liam, what did you think of the ensemble cast, and who, uh, who stuck out to you? I think there is no one in the film who doesn't work in what they're doing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's no moment that doesn't fit. Um, and I think everyone is really sort of executing. Um, I mean, obviously, like, it's hard for me to see past, to some extent, the Joaquin Phoenix and um, uh, Josh Brolin performances. Like, just their dynamic sure. with each other. It's so charming as it is ridiculous and like the the josh brolin's character is so <laughs> weird in this movie in the sense of like they're having these moments where they're connected and then in other moments he's just beating the shit out of them and there's just like so much kind of going on there and uh, in a sense the way that like i don't know one of the things i found myself thinking about this particular viewing was how joaquin phoenix's character is sort of fooling himself that he's not also a form of cop like, you right. know what I mean? Like, he's like a pretend cop, but he thinks he's not at all a cop, if that makes sense. So something sure. something about that, like, was really interesting for me and in how he kind of plays that. But, uh, um, and, and I, I agree with uh, some of the other things you all have said, but um, uh, I was actually kind of surprised because I've lately found myself to be not very patient with Owen Wilson. Like, sure. I, that's what I was actually going to bring up simply because we haven't mentioned him yet. Owen Wilson has a fairly large part in this movie. Yeah. And, and I tend to recently just be like, okay, I get it. Like Owen Wilson is kind of like one note dude. And, uh, not every director is playing that note, maybe at the right times. And it, it's starting to wear out for me a little bit, but I like him in this movie. I think it works. And I think he really is utilized. Like, the moments in which he kind of gives the look of like, oh, my God, like there's so many moments where 
uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character just sort of discovers him again. <laughs> and every time I thought it was funny and it worked. I was never like tired of that joke. Uh, and it really worked for this film. So I don't know. It, it kind of made me feel a little less, uh, speaking of cynicism, cynical about Owen Wilson as a performer. <laughs> What what if we replaced Owen Wilson in this film with Vince Vaughn? What would you have thought about that? Uh, no, thank you. I'm just going to go <laughs> ahead and say that. Josh, what did you think about Owen Wilson in this? I also liked him. You know, I, I it's not so much that I haven't liked uh, him recently, so much that I just really haven't seen him in much. And yeah. I, like a lot of people kind of became aware of him through the Wes Anderson films, and then he's been working a lot but just working in things that I haven't seen. So it had been a long time, I think, since I'd actually seen Owen Wilson in a movie. And I thought this movie kind of used the stereotypical Owen Wilson kind of surfer boy, you know, long haired kind of overly chill sort of personality uh, to great effect in that, you know, that totally fits with uh, who he's trying to embody. And, you know, the way that he looks and speaks and behaves, which uh, I can easily see feeling a little bit uh, of a tough fit in other films really makes a lot of sense here. Uh, the other surprise for me was uh, Reese Witherspoon, who is right. who I know she's a very acclaimed actress and, you know, obviously she's very talented, but again, she tends to be in things that I'm not that interested in seeing. So right. for me, the, you know, in terms of this huge ensemble cast, those are really the two roles that I uh, had the biggest question marks around before I watched the movie, because they weren't actors that tended to be in things that I liked. And uh, I, I thought they both were great in this particular movie. And Reese Witherspoon and, and Joaquin Phoenix obviously have a, a strong chemistry together from being in Walk the Line together. But I'll tell you what, I don't like Walk the Line very much, uh, but I still love them as performers. And uh, and I, I was glad to see them, even in the, the small moments in this movie, uh, really kind of bring it, really show the, the, the kind of chops that they have, especially when working together. I, I, and I, I guess my understanding is that they worked so well together on set that, that Paul Thomas Anderson actually wanted to add more scenes with them, which just kind of shows uh, how well they really do work together. I mean, I, I think we should not gloss over the fact that Joaquin Phoenix is not just good in this movie, that he's, he's like almost otherworldly good, yeah. just as he was in the... I mean, that performance in The Master, I think, might be one of the great acting performances I've ever seen. It really is something that it's hard to describe just how much he's enveloping that character and, and, uh, and how... After watching it, I had trouble separating my vision of him as an actor and as a person from the performance he gave in that movie. It just was so physical and visceral. And here, he's playing a much different character, a much less aggressive and a much more uh, uh, laid back. And, you know, a lot of people compare this movie, I think, unfairly. uh, And and again, this is not a criticism of either film, uh, to The Big Lebowski. But he's not like a dude, right? This is someone who is not just kind of laying back and letting things happen to him. This is someone who is obviously very smart and very capable, but also happens to be a big fucking stoner and kind of a washout at the same time. And, you know, I really... I really think that he is a fucking amazing actor, and his performance here is just uh, more proof that he is he uh, he's come a long way since Gladiator. I'll well, tell you that much. I think that his performance in The Master is definitely transformative and amazing, and all those things. But there's something about a performance like this, which has a comedic edge to it, that like it requires a certain kind of subtlety that. It, it maybe isn't as visually impressive in some ways as the master, but I actually right. respect it more because it'd be so easy for it to be dumb. Like to do yes. comedy like this, where this is a real person. He's not like just on there fucking, you know, jumping around being like, Oh, look at me. I'm a goofball. You know what I mean? Like 
it's a it's a it's a role he's taking seriously. He's fleshing out and making a real person, but it's goddamn hilarious. Like so funny um, when it needs to be, but also in certain moments it doesn't need to be. That to me is in a way more impressive, even if it's a little more uh, understated. Before we move on to Eric Roberts, Josh, any thoughts on Joaquin Phoenix? Yeah, I mean, I as I was listening just now to what Liam was saying, you know, it, it occurred to me that. Big Lebowski is a, an understandable comparison, but perhaps the better comparison is uh, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Absolutely. And yeah, Long Goodbye is, is obviously, for anyone who's seen that film, and you certainly should, the, the, it's hard not to think about it when watching this. But I think they share a similar protagonist in the sense that, you know, when you look at Elliot Gould's Marlowe, He's also sort of floating through life a little bit. And, you know, while he's acting as a PI, he certainly has a more bohemian lifestyle that's more conducive with the times. He doesn't seem like a traditional authority figure, but he also is clearly very intelligent and actually really does understand how to do his job very well. And uh, Liam's description of Joaquin Phoenix in this kind of reminds me, again, of uh, Gould in that movie and the kind of protagonist that he plays there. And Phoenix is magnificent in this movie. I mean, he really had that amazing trifecta right in a row of the master, her, and this movie. And they were just all magnificent performances and they couldn't be more different from one another. Mm, Absolutely. Now, let's turn to Eric Roberts, the actor who gives this podcast its name. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, he got his own poster for this. Uh, he's a feature player playing Michael Z. Wolfman, a Wolfman at the core of this. He really is the, the character that kind of sets off the action, but he does not get a lot of screen time. Uh, Josh, what did you think of Eric Roberts in this movie? Well, he's good, and uh, I think what's uniquely important to his casting in this when you compare it to the other people is that because his character is discussed so much before he actually shows up about nine minutes into the movie, it actually makes it very relevant that somebody like an Eric Roberts plays this role where he's a very well-known and recognizable face, but not necessarily a major actor. Uh, You know, it couldn't be somebody like a Josh Brolin, but it also couldn't be an unknown. Like it it actually makes a lot of sense to do it this way. And, you know, you see him glimpsed in like a newspaper clipping before he appears. And I actually feel like the casting of Eric Roberts here does factor in the fact that he is Eric Roberts, if that makes sense. Right. Like, I feel Absolutely. Like that's an important part of his casting and the way that he's portraying the character. And when we do finally get to actually meet him, you know, 90 minutes into the movie, it's through a really weird, strange scene that does what this movie does so well, which is very funny and very uh, irreverent. But also mm-hmm. reveals in it, you know, something very truthful. Like, you know, it's kind of tragic in a way what has happened to uh, Wolfman. But at the same time, I mean, he obviously is kind of a sl- sleaze bag. But uh, it has that great, you know, PTA empathy uh, undercurrent running through it. Yeah, and you know what? It's it's strange to say because there's literally maybe what three, four minutes of screen time here, but. This is a real performance. You know, this is a fully-fledged Eric Roberts performance in that one, really, one scene that he appears in. Um, And it's so nice to see him acting for someone who has a legitimate eye for framing and for composition. And obviously being uh, given the time to actually emote uh, in a very kind of restrained and interesting way. But this is a real performance. And again, it's 
I know that that might sound like uh, uh, damning with faint praise, but I only say it because it's rare for us to even watch Eric Roberts' performances on this show, which made it into a theater that were shot on film, like this one was. That that were you know that where he gets a, a, a number of takes to try different things and and can come out with a, an interesting performance like this. So yeah, no, I was very pleased with him in this, though I have to admit, uh, going into that, I, I did expect him to have a little more screen time than he actually gets. Liam, what did you think of Eric Roberts? I think because the performance is actually pretty good for the little bit you get, and even, I mean, it's not a performance, but the way his image is used in other parts of the film is kind of perfect, you know, like him as kind of the, you know, there's all these like shots of him with his wife and you know, uh, in certain sequences and stuff that like he's kind of perfectly cast even visually. Uh, but what that kind of made me do feel a little bit was like, I really do wish he was in the movie more. And and I don't right. mean that as a criticism of the movie. Like, it's fine that he's not. But as someone who's doing this show, I was like, oh, man, he's like actually good at this. Like, I really wish there was more of him here just because we haven't gotten to see this from him for uh, a little bit in in our show so you know i i uh it's great it's you know he's good for what he's given but i I wish there was more there i think it's important for us to remember sometimes and it's something that we get lost in sometimes when we watch a lot of direct-to-video uh eric roberts performances which are you know he he shows up for 30 seconds in a movie and then it doesn't have necessarily a, a big uh um impact on the plot, that that this is someone that, when given the opportunity, when working with someone very talented, that he can give those performances still, that he can be very good. And when you hear something like that Tarantino wanted him to be in The Hateful Eight and that there was the potential for that performance, that, that you could see an Eric Roberts renaissance, an Eric Robertsance, if you uh, if you will, uh, can still occur, and it's something that I expect to happen before we reach 100 episodes of this show. Soon everyone will be listening because they're going to be like, look who was 50 episodes ahead of the curve. Eric Roberts is the fucking man is who that is. Josh Johnson, is Eric Roberts the fucking man in Inherent Vice? Absolutely. He's not just the man. He's the wolf man. He's the wolf man. That's very, very good. Uh, Liam, do you concur? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, again, I really wish there was more here, but he's good. He's, like, really good. Uh, Eric Roberts always leaves you wanting more. Isn't that right, Liam? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Liam, what's the worst movie we feature on this podcast? Uh, Dark Moon Rising. Okay, well, in that movie, Eric Roberts did not leave us wanting more, but that says more about the movie than it does his performance. Eric Roberts is the fucking man in... Inherent Vice, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, one of the white whales of Eric Roberts is The Fucking Man, a movie that we waited for for a long time. We needed to get the right guest. The right guest was, of course, Mr. Josh Johnson. We're going to take our final break, and when we return, we're going to talk to Josh, and we're going to say goodnight. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Episode number 50 is in 
the bag, our anniversary episode, our big number 50. I can't believe what a long, strange trip it's been on the Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man podcast. And what a joy it was to have a good friend of mine, good friend of the show, Josh Johnson, to join us to talk about two wonderful Eric Roberts projects. Josh, you are a joy. You are a wonderfully talented man. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me on Twitter uh, or Instagram uh, at the following handle, which is at IPFJosh, the letters IPF, mm-hmm. and then my name, Josh. And what, Josh, should people be looking out for in regards to work you've either done in the past or will be doing in the future that they can throw their hard-earned money at? Sure. Well, I mean, Rewind This is out there. Uh, however you consume media, it's on you know digital platforms, it's on DVD and so forth. And uh, this week marks the release of uh, the soundtrack album on vinyl mm. from Mondo and Death Waltz Records. So if you go to uh, the Mondo website, you can uh, get one of the limited edition records there. And I've also been working with uh, Severn Films and their sub-label Intervision on Blu-ray and DVD releases, special features, that kind of thing. And uh, for listeners of this show, I definitely highly recommend uh, a release that we have coming up soon, which is called Suffer Little Children, a shot on video horror movie from Britain in the mid-80s, which is, uh, interestingly enough, made as a kind of uh, vanity project by a woman with a drama school in Surrey, England, starring (laughs) the child students of her school. So look forward to that soon. Uh, what are some of the other releases from Intervision that uh, people should also check out, Josh? Well, uh, a big one is uh, from your native lands, uh, mm-hmm. the Xenophobic Experiments, which is a, a Terminator slash Predator ripoff made for $250 Canadian. <laughs> and uh, I also really like another Canadian film, uh, Things, the uh, Barry Gillis, Andrew Jordan classic, which is maybe one of the most logic-deprived movies I've ever witnessed. Yeah, everyone should, of course, check out things. And in fact, you should support Canadian film in general so they can keep bringing you things like things. Uh, Josh, you have a lot of passion for uh, ultra-low budget and micro-budget cinema. Where does that come from? I mean, I'm sure it comes from some form of mental illness. I'm not really sure Mm -hmm. exactly what the origin of it is. But I find myself more and more, especially the older I get, being drawn to the sort of extremes, uh, the extreme opposite poles of the cinematic spectrum. So uh, it's great to talk about something like Inherent Vice, and obviously I have a lot of uh, passion and enthusiasm for the best that cinema can do. But I find that sort of middle ground less and less interesting as time goes on. And what really intrigues me is when you look at something that was made for nothing, but uh, makes interesting choices that are unexpected, that don't quite fit into... uh, traditional filmmaking molds. And uh, you really find that kind of stuff a lot in the ultra micro budget or no budget uh, filmmaking of the past more than now. But I mean, Hmm. you still find it sometimes today as well. But uh, I would much rather watch uh, a shot on camcorder movie made by teenagers in Pennsylvania in 1995 than watch, you know, a $20 million sort of middle of the road romantic comedy. Right. Liam, do you have any of those uh, shot on video uh, uh, presentations from 1995 you might have in your closet that you want to share with the world? Um, I have one from uh, 1987 in which 
we created a bunch of Olympic events that were just me <laughs> being hurt. And at all right? the key mo- moments when I would get hurt, we had like a mannequin, not a mannequin, but like a stuffed version of me that we would, yes. you know, so like I was thrown down the <laughs> stairs, I was thrown out a window, I was dragged behind a car. It was like the most simple special effect. But when I was like 10 or I guess it would be 1988 because I was nine, right? I thought this was the coolest fucking thing that anyone had ever done. <laughs> like it didn't occur to me that anyone had ever done anything as cool as this thing. I hope you still have a copy of that, Liam. You should put that on YouTube. I would enjoy seeing that very, very much. I don't know. No. Well, I think the VHS had downgraded enough that like, right. I think it, it would be hard to watch now because of the sound quality. Look, if it involves you being hurt, it can't be that hard to watch. Sure. Fair. <laughs> Liam, what, where can people find you on the internet and what are you up to? Oh, uh, primarily they should find me at Cinepunks.com or the Cinepunks Twitter at, at Cinepunks. Uh, in both cases, punks is spelled with an X, so keep that in mind. Uh, and, you know, we have a bunch of stuff going on, like new shows, new episodes of the various podcasts and stuff. Um, you can check me personally out on Twitter at, at Liam Rules with a Z. But I don't, I don't know why you would do that. That seems like a bad idea. I, I see as we were recording this that you, Liam, on your Twitter, put up a poll about how un- insufferable I am as a uh, as a co-host. Well, I just wanted to know um, what people felt was a better description of you, either a monster, a jagoff, mm-hmm. right. a monstrous jagoff, uh-huh. or a Canadian bro. Fingers crossed for Canadian bro. All right. Well, we'll see the results of that on the next episode of Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man. You can find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. You can find my other podcast, No Budget Nightmares, over at NoBudgetPodcast.com. You want to check out more Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man? Well, you can do that on Twitter as well, at E-R-I-T-F-M, or go over to EricRobertsIsTheMan.com. You can also search Eric Roberts is the Man or No Budget Nightmares on Facebook and join the groups there to keep up on the latest Eric Roberts news as well as recommend projects for us to cover on this podcast. But with that said, I need to give my voice a rest. You can hear it. It's starting to give out. But it lasted all the way through our anniversary 50th episode of Eric Roberts is the Fucking Man. I want to give another big thank you to Josh for taking uh, time out of his very busy schedule to talk to us about the most worthy of all topics, Eric Roberts. We'll be back in two weeks. Say goodnight, everybody. Good night. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Eric Roberts is the fucking man. If there's anything that you can do, Eric Roberts fucking can. <laughs>